You are listening to episode 96 with Tom Kunitz, past president of the Water Environment Federation. This episode is brought to you by Rogue Water Lab. Hi, this is Erin Mosley, president of Erin Mosley, Inc. This is the podcast that is demonstrating the value of communication in the water sector. It's water in real life with my friends, the H2 duo, Stephanie Corso and Ariane Shipley. We are proud to announce our new nonprofit venture, Rogue Water Lab. A tribe, an experience, a calling, a hub where you can learn, connect, and grow. The lab is cultivating the next generation of innovators in water communication and education. Why? Because progress is a human story. And those who tell the stories rule the world. So the question now belongs to you. Are you ready to join the revolution? Yeah, breaking news, guys. Um, Ariane and I may be the next Tina Fey and Amy Poehler from Tom Kuhn's Lips to God's Ears. We just had a fantastic conversation with Tom, uh, and we got to talk a lot about the YT Summit that we just did together with Aaron Mosley and Stephen Drangschult. And you guys will hear the story of why uh, everyone is afraid when I'm holding Hummels now. So that's a thing. Uh, we also talked about the importance of understanding stress. Yeah, and its connection with fear. And, you know, Ariane makes an epic connection of that to, of course, Harry Potter. Duh. Yeah. Um, I also got to have Tom share some of my favorite Tom stories. And one of those was a story that he told at WebTech that Ariane got to hear. And then another one that I heard on a podcast webinar he's just an amazing storyteller so no spoiler alerts but there is a second part to the weft tech story there is so even if you're like yeah i heard it nope we got a part two we also got to talk to tom about uh him and his i think it's his cousin Bubik ferdosi who is the mohawk astronaut yes the you need to google it and um, talk about the power of story uh, with data and how to communicate science in that way. And he tells us how Second City can um, elevate your career in the water industry. Yeah, who knew? Who knew that training the next generation of comedians could help you be a rock star in the water industry? Um, and then we were super lucky to be able to hang out with Tom and interview him for our mashup that we did at the Brave Blue World documentary premiere. And we got to have him weigh in on one of our favorite quote, one of our favorite quotes from Matt Damon. But before we get to that, let's do Tom Spire here. Tom Kunins is the immediate past president of the Water Environment Federation. He is currently the assistant director of monitoring research for the Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago and is also on the board of directors of the Water Research Foundation. He has over 35 years experience in the water sector as an environmental engineer and is a registered professional engineer, a recipient of the Charles Walter Nichols Award for Environmental Excellence from the American Public Works Association as well as a web fellow. So without further ado, let's get to the show. So we are incredibly excited to be here today with Tom Kunins. Hello. Thank you for taking some time out and joining us today. Hi, Tom. Hey, hey. Good morning, ladies. Thanks for having me. 
It was super exciting to uh, get to partner with you and Aaron at the YP Summit. And so we're excited that we get to follow that up with a, with a fun conversation. So Arianne. I'm going to go question number one. <laughs> um, I've been dying to know this. So, I mean, you could be like anywhere in the world, you know, but you're here in the water industry. You literally could have been, you know, on Saturday Night Live, but you're protecting public health. Yay. Did you choose water or did water choose you? I have to say that water chose me. Um, yes. Uh, although I tell you, um, going back a little bit in history, when I was in um, uh, uh, looking for different careers, I'm going into college, looking for colleges, actually, I was looking at both a major in environmental engineering and um, theater acting. And it. so I was going combo. to schools looking at, you know, doing the, the, the school visits and I'm looking at both of those schools. And uh, what really set me off onto the path towards uh, engineering was peanut butter. <laughs> and that is, uh, okay. <laughs> was that, I was at a school and, and, and we were getting the tour there uh, uh, in the theater department. You know, we go into this room. And uh, here's a bunch of these theater majors, and, and the place is a mess. There's, you know, junk laying everywhere. And the, uh, the, I think the tour guide was a little, yes, the tour guide was probably a little embarrassed, saying, uh, well, these, you know, these are props for the play and so on. And there was a, uh, a student there, and he had a bag of a generic white bread sitting in front of him, and he pulled it out, and he used his fingers to go into the peanut butter jar and make himself a peanut butter and peanut butter sandwich. <laughs> and at that moment, I had this flash forward view of me being 45 years old and eating peanut butter sandwiches for a living if I become an actor. <laughs> and I says, uh, eh, maybe not. So at that point, I decided to focus on engineering where, uh, you know, at least I would have some health insurance and a decent salary. Wow. So thank you, peanut butter. Yeah. Whoever that is, <laughs> if you're listening, peanut butter man, thank you. But I also wanted to then to go back to Ariane's question about, you know, did water choose me or I choose water? So I have to say, though, that, you know, I was looking at, at schools for environmental engineering because, mm -hmm. you know, my connection to water growing up in uh, Pennsylvania. And nice. uh, I, I did a lot of uh, outdoor uh, activities. I loved hiking and uh, camping in the Appalachian Mountains of Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania is very blessed with a lot of mountain streams. Mm -hmm. And I just really enjoyed sitting there next a stream or as a kid climbing around creeks going running through creeks turning over rocks looking for little bugs and stuff like that and uh, i have to understand also at my time i was a child of the environmental movement mm -hmm, of the 1970s yeah. you know i was around when the first earth day came about and these were the times of the advertisements on tv the anti-littering campaigns sure. And all about the ecology of the earth. So this is what uh, inspired me. And I says, I, I knew I wanted to do something that had to do with the, the environment. And, and water just really spoke to me from my, from my youth in Pennsylvania. So that's how, that's how it became water. Nice, nice. Well, Thank I you. love that you infuse that side of you into what you do in the industry. Because I, uh, I think that's a gift. And we'll, we're going to get into that a little later. But uh, I'm, I'm glad that your path landed you here because we're, we're lucky to have you. So thank you, Peanut Butter Man, again. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one reason that I can say that is that you taught us a lot of things at the YP Summit. But I think the biggest moment for me was when uh, you gave me my acting debut. And uh, <laughs> it was a pretty powerful session that we had at the YP Summit about around this idea of having difficult conversations with people that think differently than you and have different perspectives and opinions on some pretty 
emotionally charged topic. So it seems like these days that we can't get dis- disagree with anyone. It just always turns into this really escalated, heated disagreement and not just two people talking about their different opinions on something. So talk to us about some of the techniques techniques that you built into that script that Stephen Drangschult and I acted out at uh, at the YP Summit and, and why that's so important for people to know. Well, uh, yeah, maybe just give a little bit of background for your audience. I'll talk a little bit about the scripts to start with. Yeah, and uh, this was a uh, an exercise in which I had written uh, two scripts uh, about a brother and sister who have two different uh, diametrically opposed views on gun control. And in the, the first uh, scene, uh, the two of them get into a very heated argument and get angry and uh, part ways. And, and I have to point out, uh, by the way, their Oscar-winning moment, Stephanie. <laughs> yes. The Oscar-winning moment of all, that's, 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 she's holding this little Hummel figurine, which had come from Germany, and, and threw it at her brother and smashed it on the stage yes. into about a million pieces that went flying into the first few rows. I'm still digging shards out of my eyeballs. Yeah, definitely a million pieces. <laughs> the the audience's verbal gasp at that <laughs> yes. whole thing was was just like the best ending you know that you could have uh, uh so that, including that's including my own gasp <laughs> did not know that was gonna happen they talk about the door slam heard around the world well that was <laughs> that was the hummel slam heard around the world yeah i'll take it so then in part two of the scene, it's the same setup, brother and sister, they get into this discussion on gun control, but, and this time, now they start using some different techniques to have a more, as you said, uh, uh, more high value conversation without getting into breaking Hummel figurines on the floor. <laughs> so I, I did, and, and I thank you for noticing that, I did put into the script, e- everything that was said there was for a purpose. Of course, any fourth, any play or any good playwright, every line has a purpose. So everything in there was to demonstrate something. So some of those techniques that you asked about, probably the most important, uh, if, if folks were to take away nothing else from this conversation, it is when you feel that moment that you want to say something immediately to the other person, to actually control yourself and stop, mm. pause, and don't talk. Mm-hmm. That silence in there, taking those few seconds to calm yourself down and think, is the key to turning the conversation around. And as you saw in that script, when uh, your character was insulted and and rightly so could have turned around and and shot back with uh, another good line, instead took that pause, took a beat. And what she did next was to compliment her brother. (laughs) And that's part two. Yeah. And that's a very hard thing to do to somebody that we just got red in the face angry with is to actually reach out and compliment that person. And yet those two things together is the key to starting to turn the conversation around. Mm -hmm. I I liked the the power of the pause in uh, another one that you put in there where um, he said something snarky to me again. And this time I just didn't say anything at all. And it gave him time to actually think about what he had just said again and then realize that what he said was pretty snarky, which made him apologize for it. So even just silence itself can be pretty, uh, can be pretty powerful in those situations because you give the other person a moment to think about, oh, wow, I just said something that was really unkind. So I thought that was yeah. a good one too. 
Yes, and, and to your point there, what you're doing in there is you're not filling the space. Our space doesn't have to be filled at all times with conversation. And it allows the person to come to their own conclusion of what they said rather than you making them wrong. And that's another thing that was being done in the script here is that um, your character was asking questions and, and very curious questions about why does your brother feel the way he feels about the guns mm-hmm. and the gun issue, which uh, by asking these probing questions, it's not judgmental. It's, it's two things that allows you to understand where this other person is coming from, because that's very important. Understand somebody's perspective. Mm-hmm. and it allows them to come to their own conclusions. Sometimes they may change their own mind when they hear it out loud, when yeah. they hear these mm-hmm. questions, you know, being put there. Yeah. And that, that, that listening point is so important. Um, Winston Churchill had said, it takes a lot of courage to stand up and speak for what you believe in, but it also takes a lot of courage to sit down and listen. Mm-hmm. Love that. It's very true. I love it. So uh, we recently interviewed your partner in comms at the YP Summit, Aaron Mosley. Yes, shout out to Aaron. Shout out. Um, she talked about when people have different communication styles, um, and she confessed that she's a little bit like me um, in y'all's duo, where she may or may not interrupt during collaboration. Um, and you are probably more like Stephanie, who's frustrated by the interruption. <laughs> yeah. So this is another example of diversity because we all bring our own styles and preferences to the table. This isn't the same as that politically charged, you know, level as gun control, which we just talked about, but it can still lead to stress at work. So what, in your opinion, is the single most important thing we need to understand about stress? I'd say the first and most important thing about stress is all stress is based on fear. Mm-hmm. Stress is very normal, very natural, and is always based on a fear. And stress is in our lives. We have developed it as human beings to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. And think about uh, you know walking around in the Serengeti. You're stressed because you may be eaten by a lion. Right. Or, and that's a real fear. Or you're stressed because you're hungry. And you may starve to death. And that's a real fear. Okay, so stresses are always based on a fear. So if you know that and you start to feel stressed, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad thing because you are stressed. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But to start to say, well, why am I afraid? What am I afraid of? And if you could name that fear, now you are being able to start to handle it. Naming it is the most important first step. Name your fear or say, I am afraid that... I am going to, let's say, I'm going to lose respect from this colleague, or I am afraid that this colleague is going to go say something behind my back, or Mm -hmm. I am afraid that this colleague is going to take over and I'm going to lose my authority, or whatever, whatever. Mm -hmm. So name that. Saying what it is 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 the first step towards being able then to get your hands around and say, okay, is this a real fear? And it could be a real fear. These things could be legitimate. (laughs) Yeah. So once you know that fear, now now you can start taking steps to, if necessary, to to reduce it, so you could reduce your stress. Nice. I um, I'm kind of I have a lot of anxiety and I carry a lot of stress, and my like way to cope with that is always going to what's the worst case scenario mm-hmm. and naming that, and then going back to you know like reality. Yeah. 
you know, so. So we have to go to the apocalypse and then work our way back. And that's how we, yeah, that's how we deal with it. Yeah. That's good. And also, Ariane, you were asking about, you know, incorporating the, the diversity and other opinions into your work. And that is mm-hmm. something clearly with, with Aaron and I working. Mm-hmm. And um, that's something that's really helpful for me because sometimes we're talking about, um, whatever the topic is we're going we may be doing in a workshop and Aaron will bring up a point that I'd never thought of um for example uh partly because uh, coming from her female perspective she sure. may be more uh, in tune to how is a person going to receive this what is their what is their state of mind going to be where I'm I'm less likely to think about uh, a person's emo- emotional stance at that point mm-hmm. uh so something that's very helpful to bring in uh, so that I can see those those perspectives. So that's where the the value of seeing the diversity and being able to uh, open yourself up to say there is some value. Uh, everybody can bring something of value to to the table. Yeah, and I like how you talk about stress is really just comes from our survival mode, uh, just from being human and and outside of naming that fear of what's causing stress, but also being understanding how we as individuals react to stress because all of us kind of react a little different. And I think that's part of the reason that you do that one exercise that it's like animal bear or no animal <laughs> fish bird. Is yes. That what it's beast, called? beast bird fish. Beast bird, bird fish. Yeah. Right. And we were talking to one of the YPs <laughs> that was in that presentation and that's uh, Matt Mancheesi who he got a shout out during our last one too. So he's getting a lot of shout outs. Shout outs, I should let him know. After this, he's done. Yeah. So he was, (laughs) he cracked us up because he was saying that during that exercise, he learned that in moments of stress, he freezes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're right. Everybody's different. We heard uh, one person report that her, um, her Fitbit alarm started going off because her heart rate was going too high. Wow. <laughs> wow, and that's crazy. Another person, I walked around while these folks were doing the exercise. And, and, and you're right, the exercise was there intentionally to put people in a stressful situation. And uh, uh, one woman, one participant was standing off to the side. And I says, Is, where's your group? And she says, I don't like this exercise. I don't things, like things like this. I, I, oh. They're not fun. And I'm just not going to participate. And said, "Well, okay, but right there is a stress, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, her reaction to the stress was to step away and not participate. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm the flight. Yes, that would be like my, um, my desire. I wouldn't do it because I would like try to be a team player because she's sitting right beside me and would never <laughs> let me live that down. But what I would want to do is completely walk out, go to the bathroom, yeah. quote unquote, yeah. at that moment. <laughs> And um, I would admit that my armpits would be fully drenched in sweat. <laughs> mm-hmm. So avoidance, avoidance certainly is a coping mechanism. Uh, well, uh, we uh, we had to step out to practice our presentation, and so we didn't get to witness that. And now yeah. I'm, I've seen like we a were video having of our you own, doing it. Uh, yeah, we were having our stress. own. Yeah. <laughs> You're practicing our own version of that in a hallway. So I'm sorry that I missed that. But what a great way to like figure out or to see how it is that you yeah, react yeah. to that stuff. So. Um, but being able to have conversations with people that have different backgrounds and experiences than you have is incredibly important all the time. But especially now as we're working so hard to build more diversity and inclusion, or we liked how Aaron called it equity and belonging mm-hmm. into our industry. So as with most things, the real work starts within, uh, starts inside first and we have to get comfortable 
with putting ourselves in uncomfortable situations so that we can better empathize with other people who have those different backgrounds than we do. And I really think that you demonstrated that through a story that was, uh, it was pretty powerful to me that you um, told of a personal example of you doing this. You, you gave us this story at the opening general session at WefTech 2019. And I've actually brought it up several times in several different, yes. uh, in several different uh, episode or podcast episodes, because I just thought, I thought it was like such a good example of doing that. And I wondered if you would share that story and, that with us again. Yeah, I'll add because I actually didn't get to go to WefTech this year. I had to come home early because I was sick. So I'm going to need you to go ahead and just <laughs> start from the top. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and for you, Ariane, I want you to close your eyes and imagine that you are in a room with about four or 5,000 water professionals at WefTech. Yep. And there's a giant stage and I'm on the stage. Does that help you now? Yes. The light's beaming right <laughs> The light's you. beaming down. Yes. Yes. I'm like, oh God, what is he about to talk about? <laughs> well, the story, true story, uh, of course, um, it goes back not too long ago. I had a friend visiting me from Spain. And uh, while he was here, I said, what do you want to do in Chicago? Make sure that you get to see in Chicago, like, you know, do you want to go to Wrigley Field, top of the Willis Tower, go visit the Bean in Millennium Park, all, all those things. And his answer really surprised me because what he said he wanted to do most of all was he said, I want to go to one of those churches where they sing the gospel music like we see in all the sure. American movies. Yeah. And I says, wow, cool. Okay. Not something that I have ever done. And um, so I said, okay, let me figure this out. So I did some investigation, found a church on the south side of Chicago. And then next Sunday, we put on our nice Sunday clothes and, and down we went. And um, we got there and we stood on the sidewalk. And, and I have to you know, say this for your listeners who can't see us. Uh, I'm white. He's white. And I'm from the north side of the city, which is uh, culturally uh, somewhat different than the mm -hmm. south side. So we're down there, and we're standing on the sidewalk, and folks are going into the church. And we were very hesitant to go in. We we're very nervous. Now that we were there, we're like, is this such a good idea? <laughs> and it's not because people were scary or unfriendly, mm -hmm. because it was quite the opposite. The folks sure. that were coming in just couldn't be nicer. Mm -hmm. It's because we knew we looked different from everybody else. We knew that we were the only two white faces there, and we felt really insecure and out of place until mm -hmm. some fellow came up to us and basically pushed us into the church, <laughs> and he said, uh, the devil finds work for loafers, so get on in the church there. <laughs> I love that. Uh, so we're in the church now, and once we're in there, our discomfort did not go away, but it changed. Now we're discomfort for a different reason. Mm -hmm. And that was because the church service was very different from what we grew up in. Oh, yeah. Both Did of you... us grew up. Go keep ahead. Keep going. No, keep going. <laughs> oh, so okay. we, are, we both grew up in churches where you stand when you're told to stand and you sit when you're told to sit and you sing when you're told to sing. And you have to be very quiet. And as a, from the little boy on, shush, 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 you're always shush. You don't talk in church except when you're responding or saying a prayer. So it was a very solemn event. And here I'm in a church where these folks are singing and dancing and standing when they feel like it and sitting when they feel like it and speaking out loud whenever they feel like it and, and dancing in the aisles. And I felt really uncomfortable and, and honestly, it was part of this was like, is God watching me? Am I going to get in trouble for being here? 
if God comes down, he's going to say, what, what are you doing here making all this noise in church? He's laughing at you right now. <laughs> yeah, he is. She. She. She's laughing. Yeah. yeah. But that, that shows the power of, of, mm-hmm. of our culture to, to say this is what's right and something else is wrong. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it wasn't long before um, I'm sitting there and I start to find myself kind of tapping my foot. And I'm kind of a little bit swaying around and said, hey, you know, this is all right. This is kind of cool. And it made me feel good. It made me feel happy. And I said, maybe there is something to this. So what I was taking away from that is that, that as you said, Arianne, that perspective of, of um, uh, uh, understanding something different and accepting a different perspective. But it was also putting myself in somebody else's shoes. Mm-hmm. And what does it feel like for that person from the south side of Chicago to come to the north side and be the only person that looks like they look? And how do they feel every day when they come into the office? Mm -hmm. And things like that. I started to get a whole different appreciation for what that means to really be more inclusive. Mm. That's a great story. Now, Thank you. I loved it. I loved it. Did you realize that um, you, you didn't? Like it was going to be probably like four hours long and not your typical. Like, <laughs> in I did not. And that's funny you bring that up because I'll tell you how I got out of there. Because it was a, uh, the surf's about the two hour mark, which yeah. again, I'm not used to. Yeah. I did not have the stamina. About the two hour mark, we both looked at each other and realized this is not about to end anytime soon. Oh no, it just got started. Uh, yes. So we looked at each other and I said, well, and he says, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to go anytime you are. And he said, I've seen what I need to see. And I said, great. I said, I'm ready to go. So about that point, I says, let's wait till this thing gets done and then we'll stand up and we'll slip out. So whatever prayer, whatever they were doing finished up. And at that point, we stood up just at the moment when the preacher said, stand up and testify. Who's ready to stand up and testify? There is our first one, and all eyes were locked on me. Everybody's looking at me, standing up. So I straightened out my trousers as if that was the reason why I had stood, and then sat back down. Well, no, that was not a Weftech uh, <laughs> story. So, yeah, but that's uh, just straightening, just, out, my pants. Just straightening out the pants there. You know what it's like. Just continue, please. Nice. <laughs> I'm going to go to the bathroom real quick. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's great. I love it. So, uh, I'm going to I'm gonna go a little rogue for a second because, like, I'm remembering now listening to you that you told another story that's, that was also along the lines of... Um, this was in, I, it was on some sort of webinar where we are some sort of meeting. Oh, you came in to, I think this was uh, at, a, at the PCOC meeting. I think that this is when you first took the helm of president and you were going to all the different meetings and introducing mm, yourself. Yes. Yep. And you told the story about a gentleman who, uh, I don't know if they were being late to work or something and mm-hmm. they were approached about it and then they said everything that they have to do in order to get to work. Right. And nobody had any idea that that was happening because mm. it, they were seeing it from their perspective and not from someone else's. So can you tell that story too? Sure, sure. So <laughs> the, this has to do with the young intern that we had. And he was, like you said, he was, he was late quite often. And uh, the supervisor sat him down and says, you know, I've given you multiple warnings. And he says, I, you know, I'm going to do you a favor by, by firing you because 
you need to learn. If you're going to work in the professional world, you need to learn. Mm-hmm. And um, what this young man says, um, well, I want to tell you something. He says, I live on the south side of the city here. I live in the high-rise projects. He says, every morning I get up, I have to feed myself. Nobody else in the house is there to take care of me. He says, I have to walk down 10 flights of stairs in the dark because the elevator has never worked as long as I've lived in this building and the light bulbs are constantly stolen. So it's always dark. Then he says, I have to get about six blocks to my bus. And in the way I have to go through gang territory of two different gangs. So I have to either run for my life through there, or I have to take a wide route to get around there mm-hmm. to prevent either being recruited or shot. Mm-hmm. Says once I get to the bus, I have to ch- wait for the bus, which doesn't run all that frequently on the south side, and then change buses and then get to the office. He says, so most days, you know, I'm lucky I get here at all. Yeah. And and hearing that story, yeah, I think several things. One of them is I would have been that supervisor sitting that young man down thinking I was doing him a favor because I'm seeing it from my perspective mm-hmm. of, oh, you, this is the way that you have to behave in the office environment, right? I think that that's what I'm doing. So I learned, wow, I would have done the same thing. And the other part is, my goodness, who wouldn't want to hire that young man? Yeah. Everything that he goes through just to get to the office, imagine what he would do at a project. Mm-hmm. You know, others would run into barriers in a project and say, well, I, I can't finish this because she's not giving me what I need and he did this and that. This kid said, you, you have no idea what hardships are. Yeah, yeah. Right? And until you hear these stories and, and recognize not everybody lives the life that, that, that I do, yep. it really made me open my eyes to privileged I was mm-hmm. and how many other stories there are out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm awesome. glad he had... Um, both the courage and the vulnerability to tell that to story tell that. instead yeah. of just being like, well, thanks. Like, yeah. Thanks. Baby, right. Thanks. And you know, so I'm glad that he, uh, that he was, that he had the courage to do that. Um, and this kind of is a se- good segue into my next question, because clearly I've actually repeated that story several times too. So you just are this, your stories really resonate with me. <laughs> yeah. You're an amazing storyteller, which is a great segue to my next question because we got to have this incredibly interesting like, mm. five-minute conversation <laughs> with a relative of yours at the Brave Blue World premiere. He is the Mohawk astronaut, a.k.a. Bobak Ferdosi. So everyone go Google him. It's a thing. He really is the Mohawk astronaut. <laughs> and we can't wait to get you both on the podcast together at some point because you two gave us this little teaser and told us about this ongoing conversation that you two have about the power uh, of using story and data to, together to communicate science in a way that resonates with people on an emotional level. So why is speaking human, I'm using air quotes, why is speaking human and speaking to the emotional level of people so important, especially when we're talking about something that can be as complex and complicated as water? Uh, sure. And that's, that's, uh, uh, great. We do have fun. So Bobak and I, so Bobak is a, uh, rocket scientist works for jet propulsion Labs. So he is the, uh, uh, what they call the, you know, Hey, I'm no rocket scientist, scientist but well, yeah. he can say that, you know, um, and w- with fun, with our conversations, he, w- we're at such like diametrically opposed views here. He's talking about something that is so far away from us mm-hmm. and so big and so mind blowing. So mind-blowing. You know, because he, he, he like, he was the uh, uh, flight director on the Curiosity mission that landed on Mars. Mm-hmm. And they look at exoplanets and so on. And I'm looking at something that is so 
so common day and mundane as water. We don't even think about this anymore. Mm-hmm. And yet there, there is, as you said, there still is in there talking the stories. As Bobak pointed out to me, he says, you know, you may have an easier time of explaining what you do than I do. And I said, well, nobody really cares about water. It's as long as you turn on your faucet and flush the toilet, right? Who thinks about it? But, but what you do is so exciting and inspiring. And he says, how do I explain to somebody why we spend the money that we do to go exploring here? When there's other uses for that, that money back on earth. Mm-hmm. How do I explain in, in terms that are going to get people excited about things that have to do with, with molecules and gas and gravity and physics and stuff that is beyond the comprehension of most people even that, that have a four or eight you know, year post high school degree. Mm-hmm. It's beyond the understanding of, of most educated people. So it is taking that back. Whatever you're talking about is bringing it back to the story, bringing it back to connecting to the people. And and that is the the power of of, of using uh, uh, the the pieces of the science because that's kind of exciting for folks to say, oh, this is why something happens, understanding the why behind that. Mm -hmm. This this molecule does that, and that's why things happen. Um, And even on the large scale, things bang into each other and we have the atmosphere that the earth has because of the various things that had happened millions of years ago. So the, the story always brings back to, to connect to why is it important to me? Why is this rock that's floating around in space? What is a rock, an inanimate object? How does it connect to me? And that is the key to it, is connecting it back to the individual. Well, there is oxygen in the atmosphere you to believe, for you to breathe because of things that had happened before. And you know, we're having some problems with, uh, with uh, our atmosphere degrading because of human activity. And it does affect you. Um, you know, there's folks that have, uh, let's say, ice skating rinks, right? Mm-hmm. And climate change is affecting those, those people with ice skating rinks. I just yeah. uh, heard a story on 60 Minutes about the, the Dutch who do the ice skating race every year. And it's been a, a oh, wow. centuries-old tradition. They can't hold it in Holland anymore. They have to go into the mountains of Austria to hold this race okay so when you you know you could tell the story and say well we're going to raise so many degrees celsius um over the next 50 years and what does that mean to an individual well i you know it's 80 degrees today i could take another two degrees yeah when you bring it back home and say well you're not going to have your ice skating race or you know when you go out to your barbecue you're going to suddenly get a sunburn or your eyes are going to go bad or whatever right start bringing why it affects that person. Yeah. And that's the same thing we tell stories about the water because water, you know, makes up 60% of our body. Water is necessary for life. All of those things, the water quality, the water quantity, and water security. We can't go off and do all those other fun things we do, like sitting around having podcasts, <laughs> if, if we're going to be out there struggling just to, to carry a jug of water back to our home. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, I love it. I mean, I'm a huge story nerd, obviously. And so um, I think it's really important. And so I really liked that that was something that a fellow water nerd and, an, and a NASA nerd were, were talking about story too. So it's everywhere. Yeah, it, it's, it was cool. I, I, would, I appreciate you introducing us to him because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I grew up in Houston, near Houston. And, you know, you see NASA and it's just this big thing you know, way out in the distance and you're like, um, it kind of feels like it's just a machine that runs itself and <laughs> these like machines are putting rockets into space or 
curiosity onto Mars and to meet an actual human who two of them we got to two meet of there. them yeah, yeah. And, and to meet them and hang out and first of all one of them has a mohawk that's super cool <laughs> um to meet them and get to hang out with them and just they're normal people they're he's like yeah i put curiosity on mars like no big deal yeah it was and in I'm sharknado like, oh my gosh something. like yeah <laughs> sharknado <laughs> and like oh yeah, there are humans behind NASA. So I, I kind of got that experience of the way a customer maybe could feel, oh yeah, there are humans behind mm. the water utility. Mm-hmm. You know, so that was a cool experience. So yeah. Yeah. And so recently, in fact, Bobek has been working on a project closer to home. And he says that it was really important for him to change perspectives because he's working with the India Space Agency right now, mm-hmm. doing a project looking at Earth, using Earth satellites to look at Earth for looking at weather patterns and uh, things like that. So he said it was very, very, very helpful for him to bring it back to why does all of this stuff matter? Mm-hmm. Why does what he do matter back here uh, uh, yeah. you know, at home on our home planet? So ready cool. to get to the... Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> this is what I've been wanting to ask you since the day I met you. <laughs> so I hope you didn't think we were actually going to like make it through this whole podcast without bringing up, um, nerding out a little bit about your role at Second City. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know, listeners, what Second City is, for shame, <laughs> and go Google it, and you'll notice a, a large list of people that you 100% know. Yep. Um so please tell me more about Second City and how integral your role is there and how that's been in your role of water. Well, sure. So yeah, the Second City is a it's a comedy theater in Chicago. And uh, it did spawn any comedy theater. Well, it's probably one of the premier comedy theaters in the, in the country. (laughs) It did spawn, as you said, a lot of comedians that have come out of there from John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd and Gilda Radner, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, uh, John Candy, um, and the list goes on and on. Yeah, it's a very long list. And so for the listeners in Canada, SCTV, which you may remember from the 80s with uh, Martin Short and uh, Dave Thomas and yeah. uh, Harold Ramis and Andrea Martin and so on. That was a, that was a branch of the, the second city from Chicago. So it is a, it's a comedy theater. Now, along with that, we have a school to teach the uh, up-and-coming comedians. We call it the Second City Training Center. And uh, I went through the program there when I was uh, younger here in Chicago. And, uh, in fact, in classes, a year behind me in classes was Tina Fey. So I saw hey. Tina Fey as oh a, a young goodness. unknown. Gosh. <laughs> she clearly could see, see her, her skills at that time. She was really really tremendous. Uh, yeah. I did get the chance to see her perform before she uh, moved on to the stages and on to fame. Um, so that's the, the background, what that is. Well, uh, about 20 years ago, uh, I was had the opportunity to get um, on the faculty there of teaching at the training center. So I have been teaching for the last 20 years, and I teach improvisational comedy, and I also teach sketch comedy writing. So I teach uh, comic writing. Yes. I want to do that so bad. So, 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 so bad. Yeah. So. Oh, well, either come on up here or you and I will do uh, courses online. Oh, online courses. Yes. Good. You can watch me be terrified in the corner of the (laughs) Yes. Yes. I want to do it because I'm so bad at this and I, I, yes. Anyways, well, that's another conversation for another day. Keep going. (laughs) But no, it's. 
important what you're saying is that the skills that we teach there are really life skills. You know, a lot mm-hmm. of folks come there hoping one day to get onto a stage, maybe get in television, movies, SNL, whatever. Uh, but if, obviously, most of them never will. It just it's, it's a numbers yeah. game, if nothing else, right? Yeah. Um, so, I knowing this, when I teach, I make sure that I'm teaching these folks life skills, whether they know it or not. I don't really come out and tell them, but the same skills that we have on improvisation are the life skills we need to succeed in life. It's about cooperation, collaboration, partnering, listening, making yourself the best partner that you could be so you could attract the right partner for you to work with you. And that, that's whether you're working or in your, your personal life too. So these are the types of, of, of skills that I teach. And, it, and it's helped me tremendously, tremendously in my own uh, profession here because now it makes me more focused when I'm listening to somebody. I think about what skills do I need so that I could be a better partner to the folks that I work with. Also, it made me a better speaker. You know, folks talk a lot of times about, well, thinking on your feet. You're really good at thinking on your feet. All of that stuff that improvisers do where they say, wow, they just came off with that, uh, with that at the top of their head. Well, that is, um, that is not something that just comes to you from um, uh, saying off the top of your head. It is skill that is learned oh, and developed God. from uh, uh, going through a lot of practice in that so that you develop these skills. Good to know that I have a chance. <laughs> um, I learned real quick. Okay, so people tell me, Stephanie mostly, that I'm funny. It's really just her that I make laugh all the time. I'm but the only one who thinks that. It's fine. Um, but it's not about being funny. It's about being confident and <laughs> vulnerable to self-deprecate all the time for myself. You do that all the time. Um, but it comes out funny. <laughs> but what I learned was super important was we were in a, um, a training for public facilitation. Oh boy. And they, the group, um, pretended to be in a public meeting. This was like a pretty, they were acting at a pretty hostile public meeting. I'll say that. And I've had my share of public meetings. Um, they have never gone this wild, but I, um, I was literally in the corner of the room behind a bush because I was terrified because I couldn't speak clear enough. I couldn't think fast enough on my feet. I couldn't assess the room and figure out how to deescalate the situation. And I knew right then and there, I have got to get into some improv classes to learn how to do all of those skills way better. (laughs) Yeah. You know how Zach Galifianakis Galifianakis is between two ferns? She was behind the fern in the corner. (laughs) Of the room. Yeah, 100%. And I was like, great, that's my partner, my duo. What are you doing over there? (laughs) But uh, those exactly are, it's practice. It's about learning the skills and then practicing the Mm -hmm. skills. And then there's always that mental component, which are the demons in our head. Those are the demons that come out and say, you're no good. You have nothing to say. My ex-lover was right about me. I am inadequate. It's it's all those demons that that come to the to the forefront, and we also learn how to deal with those. They never actually go away, but we learn how to to quiet those voices mm-hmm. down. Yeah. Well, I I had to ask that question, or I that I wrote that question because I just I think it's so important how absolutely valuable it is to have, and you have it all wrapped up in one person, but to in organizations or 
boards or whatever work groups to have people who have that right side as well as the left side of the brain because you can just get so much divergent thinking going and so much more innovative or creative solutions to things or just different ways of seeing things. And um, that's why I just, I feel that it's so important that that piece, whether it be communication, marketing, whatever you want to call it, the outreach, the education, people that are on that side are get more infused in things that we do in our pretty heavily driven left side brained industry, just because it's so, it's so important because it's not just about the pipes and the processes and all of the things that engineers bring to the table, but we go to work every day with human beings. We rely on the support of our of our customers, which are human beings. We have to get boards and directors and legislators and regulators to all be on board with us for things, which are all human beings. And at the end of the day, we all go home and we have these lives and we, we somehow forget that. We somehow, we talk to people uh, in the biz differently than we would talk to one of our friends or somebody that like after hours, we... Like I would never go to someone and just be like, you're going to do this. And I'm not going to tell you why you're going to do that. You're just going to do it because I told you to do it. I mean, I don't even really like tell my kid that. I mean, sometimes back in the day when she was a little younger, but, uh, don't ask me why. Yeah. Don't ask me because I said so. But then like when we get to work, we forget that and we get like so upset when people act human. And so I think that it's so important to learn all of the things that, you know, you and Aaron touched on in YP Summit and all of the life skills that you call them that you teach through Second City. I just, I think it's so important. I wanted to give a shout out to that and, and see people that, Hey, there's a, all of that's happening in one human being and Tom. So like you're a good case study for it. So I appreciate that. Oh, well, I, uh, thank you. I'm very, very flattered to, coming from somebody like you to say that. Thank you. Oh, well, it was like a life goal for us that when we made you, <laughs> we made you bellow laugh at, at YP. Yeah, we got a belly laugh out of Tom. I was like, oh my God, Mr. Funny Man, we made him laugh. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, that came from his toes. That was amazing. <laughs> So we got to check that box off the bucket list. Um, so I was in my head like, so there's there's a chance I'm yeah. going to get to Second City one day. <laughs> one day. We'll, we'll make sure that happens and then that will be a podcast. So WEF, uh, bringing it back to that, was a key partner for the Brave Blue World documentary uh, that we got to see you at in December of 2019. Amazing flick. Uh, that was, you're actually in. You had a cameo in that film and and a lot of that was happening while you were the acting president at WEF. And, but one of my favorite lines from mm. that movie came from Matt Damon when he said, how lucky are we that we're the ones to get to solve this, this being the global water crisis. And that was super powerful for me. We've kind of brought that up several times and embedded that in different things that, that we've done. But what does that statement mean to you? It is a very powerful statement. It's very inspiring. How lucky are we? We are the ones that get to solve the problem. And you say, wait a minute, how does it make me lucky that I have a problem to deal with? It's it's like that quote from, uh, that saying from Albert Einstein, if you remember that, where he talks about in every crisis, there's an opportunity. Mm -hmm. So if we look at the positive side and look at this crisis in water and say, what are the opportunities? 
that's very inspiring. That's the inspiring part that, that Matt Damon was talking about. It inspires us to say, now we can be thinking of new solutions. We could be applying new technologies. We can be telling those stories. This is an opportunity to tell those stories that you've been talking about and reaching more people. It's an opportunity to change completely the way that, that we model the way that we live because our current lifestyle is not sustainable. We know that, and it's going to crash maybe within our lifetime. We have to very significantly change the way we live. So this is an opportunity to do those things and opportunity to, as human beings, to do something that's exciting and inspiring and positive, and we can see the results. That's, that's what, why that, that is so powerful to us. It's also a message to young people, mm-hmm. young folks, the ones who are inheriting this earth, mm-hmm. inheriting and in say, I also have the ability here to also participate. Uh, instead of I could, you know, sit down there and moan and, and cry about the, the terrible state of the world that was handed to me. Well, every generation was handed a world that wasn't perfect. Yep. And, and, you know, the next generations, the young people, this is a wonderful, inspiring uh, call to action for them to say, hey, this is an opportunity. I can find, where's my piece of this? Where's my piece of getting involved in doing something uh, worthwhile and something that's going to leave a legacy? Yeah. I mean, if there's any generation that's got it, it's this one. And that was witnessed at the YP Summit Mm. because they were so engaged Mm -hmm. and so in their feels and just (laughs) okay with being vulnerable. It was, it blew my mind that you you said, raise your hand to, I need six volunteers. And there was more than six people raising their hand. Yeah. You know, to come up on that stage. I just couldn't believe I was sitting on my hand ducked in the, (laughs) in the chair. I couldn't believe so many um, YPs, they're just, man, they, they're okay with their feelings and mm-hmm. they are like, I'm going to talk about it and we're going to, we're going to work. You know, I, I want to express this, how this made me feel. And I'm mm-hmm. like, wow, that's cool. Yeah. And that is exciting to know that our future is going to be in the hands of people like that. People who mm-hmm. do want to get engaged and are willing to stand up and be vulnerable. And like that other quote, that's my favorite from the documentary, demand better. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. I demand better. I love yeah. that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, we definitely appreciate you taking some time. We're going to hop into our lightning round. <laughs> I'm going to let Ariane kick that off. You ready for this? I am. Okay. Tom, <laughs> yes. what's your favorite book right now that you can recommend to us? How about I uh, Start With Why by Simon Sinek? Ooh, that's a good one. We love that All one. Right, we'll take it. Good choice. Yep. I like good it. Good choice. Um, Originally, we asked what's something you do every day that drives your productivity. Oh, but that's right. That's the question I gave him. So this is going to be Erin Mosley killed that for us. She did. Um, so I'm going to throw the Erin Mosley question to you. What does? How do I get my hair to look like this? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Close. Yes. Um, what does a successful day look like to you? Yeah. Like at the end of the day when you're looking in the mirror, brushing your teeth, you know, you're like, man, today was a good day. day. Like what's a successful day for you? Uh, When I uh, go to bed and I'm too excited to sleep because, you know, because excited things happen during the day. And if I could even say even a work day, when I walk out at the end of the day from a work day, when I am, when I'm pumped up, when I'm excited, I'm leaving there. And that almost always happens because I have had positive interactions with people. 
not because I sat in my office all day working by myself, but because I had really positive interactions with people and that I, I, I was able to help somebody with something. I was able to reach out and make somebody else's day a little better. Ooh, nice answer. And thank you for being the first to answer that in our lightning round. Um, I'm officially going to put that one in because I, just from your answer, I think that's a fantastic way to say, we're not saying get up and work out and go create your to-do list. We're saying, yeah, go get out and interact with people and have conversations and see what that makes you feel like at the end of the day. I love that. And I'm glad that we made that happen. And tonight you can go to bed excited because we got to hang out for an hour today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you get a text from me at midnight, you'll know why. Yeah. You'll be like, I'm cursing you. I can't fall asleep. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So before Ariane and I went rogue, we worked for water utilities doing public education and outreach. And our whole goal was behavior change. And, you know, sometimes we would have people that would say, well, what difference does it make if I make a change? I'm just one person. It's not going to make a difference, but obviously we disagree with that because we think that, you know, you never know who's watching, who's watching, and you never know what you can inspire in others by the change and the direction that you take. So what is the one call to action that you're most passionate about that you believe could ultimately change the world? Uh, I'm going to put out two words there, and that is gratitude and humor. Mm, Perfect. And I think that uh, it's so important that we uh, recognize in every day of our lives, have gratitude, be grateful for something. Yes. That puts us into a positive frame of mind and it puts us in a state of recognizing the value that others bring to things, others bring to our life. We have what we have because of the things that others do and it allows us to open our hearts then to give to others. Mm-hmm. And the humor part has to go along with that because in a world where there's so much pain and so much stress and, and so much uh, uh, negative emotions, we have to have the sense of humor to get ourselves through this pain into the next day and to be able to love ourselves. Um, I'm not talking about humor that, that is at the expense of somebody else. I'm saying the humor is the ability to laugh at our world and laugh at ourselves and not take ourselves so seriously. That's going to be able to open up our hearts again. And it's that, that opening up the hearts comes from gratitude and comes from the ability to have a sense of humor. Yeah. Love it. Uh, I wanna. I love that you said gratitude because I have been practicing a lot of gratitude lately because I have to give a shout out to Brene Brown, who is one of my favorite authors. And in her book, Daring Greatly, she talks about this idea of foreboding joy. And I suffer from this immensely, which is basically like when you're super happy and everything seems to be going right, you're like, holy cow, what's going to happen? Like, is the apocalypse about to happen? Like, why is everything going so good? And the antidote to that is gratitude. And so when your mind starts to go down that path, saying, nope, I am grateful for my job and for all these people in my life that I love or for this or for that. And so I have found that gratitude is so important, especially when you were, I mean, it is a scary world, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things going on and not letting that steal your joy and using gratitude as the antidote to that to be, you know, recognize how blessed we are each day. So love that. So thank you. Um, so we are so excited to have, to have made this conversation happen. We hope that we get to have another one once you've cured Ariane and she's... Guys, I'll be gone for the next year. 
Do you, go. you ever see that, that that show, uh, My Fair Lady? Okay, you're going to yeah. see a whole new lady there. Ooh, Ooh, check, please. Okay, okay. <laughs> well, we appreciate you taking the time, and uh, thanks for chatting with us today. Thank you. Oh, thank you both. It was a joy to be here. Thanks, Stephanie. Thanks, Ariane. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Never miss out on future episodes by signing up for the Lab Notes, formerly the Water Nerd Newsletter. This is your one-stop shop for the podcast catalyst and all things Watercom's revolution. Sign up at roguewaterlab.org. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at roguewaterlab. Plus, still keep up with the H2Duo shenanigans at the underscore H2Duo. Don't forget to share with your friends and fellow water nerds so we can continue to grow the tribe. Remember, it doesn't matter if you're a water communicator, educator, or an engineer or operator. You are a communicator. As public health stewards, we have a responsibility to the people we serve to have our comms game on point, to build the trust and support necessary to create a resilient water future. Investing in comms is an investment in yourself and your organization. Why? Because just like what one of our favorite quotes says, those who tell the stories rule the world. world.